Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Zach Evans Podcast. Excited to have you with us. You might hear some background noise. It's wind. In fact, it's 46-mile-an-hour winds hitting the side of this thing that we're staying in up in uh, Pigeon Forge, up in the mountains. It's called a yurt, Y-U-R-T. I don't know if you've stayed in one of these, if you know what it is. It's like a house in a tent had a baby. It's a, a f- like a round frame uh, made of wood with a heavy insulated tarp all the way around it and a steep roof. And it's really cool. It's very unique. Um, but when the wind hits it, man, it makes a lot of noise. So forgive me for any background noise. We're doing the best that we can. But just here on a little bit of a study retreat, uh, spent pretty much all day reading the Bible and getting sermon ideas. My wife spent a lot of time reading today, just trying to get away and get in the Bible and allow God to speak to us. And he did today. Very thankful for that. But excited about this episode, episode number seven. It's called Choose You This Day. And we're pulling from Joshua. Joshua's kind of farewell speech to Israel as they go off to possess uh, the promised land. And you know, there's the famous quote where he says, if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. And what I want to do is I kind of want to give the context of that statement. When we understand the history that he is pulling from, when we understand the case that God is making through Joshua in that moment, that statement becomes even more powerful. And I really think that this will be helpful to you. I learned a lot studying for this as far as just how to package things in the Old Testament. Sometimes we we get lost in the detail. Um, Not a bad thing at all. But in this case, what we kind of do is we kind of zoom out and get a bird's eye view of the story of the Exodus and try to show how it all kind of leads up to that climactic moment where Joshua dismisses everybody into the promised land with that statement, choose you this day whom ye will serve. And there's a lot there for us to learn. I think it'll be helpful to you. So we'll jump in here in a moment. But of course, as always, if you would, please like the podcast, follow if you're not already. Um, what's cool about the podcast is, you know, I have access to all the analytics. And one thing that's interesting is we have about, uh, I would say, probably 30% or 40% of people who listen aren't following. And uh, so if, if you could, if you haven't followed, double check that you are following. I had somebody that was like, yeah, I'm following, enjoying it. And then they pulled it up and they're like, oh, wait, where'd your podcast go? And either they accidentally unfollowed or whatever, and that kind of stuff happens. But double check, make sure you're following. Uh, Leave us five stars if you can. Leave a review. That would be awesome. And we've had some people lately who have even signed up to support us with some monthly donations. And we really, really appreciate that. Uh, That's going to help us get new equipment and hopefully help us to... um, get a podcast studio up and going. We actually already have the space that somebody has given us. It's a, hey, you can use this space. And so we're just trying to pray down equipment and all the things that we would need to really do it uh, the right way. So if you could pray with us about that, and if you'd like to be involved, there's a link in the description. You can click. It takes you to a little donate page for a small uh, monthly donation. But most of all, we're just so thankful that you listen. Just honored that anybody would listen to this podcast. We're very, very thankful. So with that, we'll jump into episode seven, 
choose you this day. Enjoy. Joshua 24 and verse 14. The Bible says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Now, we understand that Jesus is pulling from this when He says that the Father seeketh such to worship Him. They that worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's a very similar phrasing, and maybe He pulled this from from Joshua. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Now notice verse 15. This is Joshua speaking to the children of Israel. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We focus on where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the famous tagline of the verse. But to understand really what he's saying, you've got to move further back up into the verse to where he says, if it seems evil to you. And when you think about the people that he's talking to, that is a crazy statement. That anyone in this group of people who had been through what they had been through would think in their heart that it's an evil thing to serve the Lord, that seems crazy to us. He says, if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, then here's what I want you to do. Then show me the alternative. That's what he says. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. Then who are you going to serve? If not this God, if not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then which God? You tell me. Now, this is the culmination, the climax of an argument that really God is making towards Israel to hold them accountable is essentially what he's doing. And kind of the vein that I want to deal with is when he says that it's a choice. He says, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Let me say this in introduction. Human beings are complicated. We're very complicated. And one of the things that means is that we like to complicate things. We like to make things complicated. The government is a fantastic example of what I'm talking about. So many things could be streamlined and done relatively easily, but if someone has a job to regulate something, they might as well complicate it completely, and that's what they generally seem to do. But we're complicated creatures, and we tend to complicate things. And one of the things that we do is we tend to underestimate our own complexity. And what that does is that makes us think that we understand ourselves and other people more than we actually do. We have a very naive sense of human nature. I'll give you an example. There was a guy who texted me, and these vague texts are really hard to deal with, but he sent me a really vague text that said, Pastor, what do I do? What do you do about Christians who play devil's advocate? This is a text. I'm thinking... I have no idea what you're talking about, to be honest with you. Like, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? I don't know. I don't even know what you mean. I need some context to that. that. That was just an emotional text. But we talked later, and I said, look, I said, I, I didn't really respond because I had no idea what you were talking about. He's like, well, I was just mad. I said, well, I figured. And so I said, well, give me some context. And he did. And I said, look, I said, here's the deal. It is almost impossible to assume human motivation. That's very difficult to infer. There's a, a psychologist, psychoanalyst, and this is not someone that I would recommend wholeheartedly. This is just an interesting quote. 
Carl Jung, who some of you probably have, have heard of, he said that if you're having trouble finding the motivation, look at the effect and infer the motivation. That's interesting. So what he means is if you're having trouble figuring out why someone is doing something, look at what it caused, look at what their action caused, and then say, that's why they did it. So if the result of the action is someone is hurt, then you could assume that that was the intent. The intent was to hurt. Or if the effect was to help, then you can assume that the effect was to help. And that's kind of like the opposite of the naive. It might even be a cynical view of human motivation. But the point is that human motivations are very complicated. And we tend to think we have a better read on why other people do what they do, um, which, I mean, that idea is completely blown out of the water when you begin to understand that you don't understand why you do what you do. You really don't. You think you do, but you don't. We think, look, 98% of your cognitive faculties run involuntarily and imperceptible to you. 98%. 98% of your cognition runs without your consent. It runs in the background. So there's a lot happening in you that you're not aware of. There's a lot happening in you that you don't know about. The part of us that is conscious and you know aware is obviously the thing that makes us us, but there's a lot more to us than that. And to think, and this is where we have, again, this is like the sin of pride in a nutshell. Pride assumes it knows more than it does, and it applies it to ourselves and to other people. Okay, so then we, we do this with things like why we're not changing in an area, why our marriage stinks, why our relationship with God isn't what it's supposed to do. We pretend that we know why that is, or we can just blame, we can claim complete and total ignorance. We do that too. Like, why would somebody do that? Think about that. There's, there's two extremes. We think we know exactly what the problem is, and we're probably wrong. Or on the other side of the extreme, we pretend that we have no idea why things could possibly be bad. I don't understand. I mean, I've done everything that I could. I, I don't understand why my kids are, are, are like this, why they're complete and total heathen. I mean, we did everything that we could. And people are sending back going, uh, what? No, that's not what it looked like to us. I don't understand why my marriage is like this. And again, other more objective people are sitting back going, then you're just not paying attention. And then there's the other people who are like, I know exactly what my problem is. It's, it's this. It's like, well, maybe, probably not. Right, maybe that's a part of it. So we have to admit that we're fairly ignorant about our own nature. Now, here's what we can do with that. Then we can go to the person who authored human nature for understanding about ourselves. And one of the really important things about reading the Old Testament, which is narrative form, is you're seeing in long form human nature. You're seeing a, a really broad understanding of human nature playing out in the Old Testament. God is dealing with the Israelites. So, for example, we read... So the, the proof that we don't understand ourselves is that we look at Israel and we can't see ourselves in them. So we look at them at the waters of Meribah after the great victory, and we go, how could you doubt God after what he just did? You silly Israelites. What's the matter with you guys? I mean, come on. And yet, I mean, that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do. We do the same exact thing. You ever had a prayer answered? Like you prayed it just then. You prayed it, God answers it, and then 10 minutes later, you're like, well, I mean, maybe it wasn't really God answering my prayer. What is that? It's the same thing. I'll give you a silly example, but we were on the golf course, and uh, we, we sent the, uh, 
the ladies to the spa. By that, I mean that they told us they were going to the spa. And um, so they went to the spa, and we we're like, well, we could, we could play nine holes while they're at the spa. We'd already played 18. And we played the nine holes, and we got done, and we really wanted, I mean, nine's just not enough. You know what I mean? you got to play at least 18, maybe 36. And uh, so I was like, I told Tyler, I said, you know, I just feel like I got one of those feelings that maybe God's going to do something, that God's going to, like, give us another nine holes or something like that. And uh, he's like, yeah, right. God's looking down going, seriously, you going to put me in that corner? Like, no, no, go read your Bible, you know, or whatever. And, but we get on the front nine that we're playing. And this, or, no, it was the, the second nine that we were playing. And this range officer comes up to us. And Justin's like, oh, no, what do we do? Because sometimes you're in trouble. You know, you did something bad. You didn't wreck a bunker or, you know, you left something on the green or drove somewhere you weren't supposed to drive. He comes up and goes, Guys, yeah, you, you guys, we're going to go play these holes. There's a tournament up there, so don't do that. He's like, so just keep playing on the, the routing that you're on. He's like, but when you get done with your nine, say, you want to play another nine, play another nine. He's like, you want to play till the sun goes down? Play till you're tired? He's like, I don't care. He's like, y'all are good. He's like, just play. There is a God. There is a God. Now, we only got to play one extra hole, but it was this beautiful par five, incredible par five, uphill, dog leg left, kind of amazing par five. And that was worth it just then. So then you think, well, God answered my prayer. Like, obviously, he answered my prayer. But then you have that thought in the back of your head, but we only got to play one hole. Well, wait a second. We had a time constraint that we couldn't get away from. So my prayer was, to some extent, ill-advised because we didn't have the time to play that long. But God answered it anyway. That's really neat. So the same thing happens with Israel, right? God answers their prayer, and then 10 seconds later, they're doubting. Okay, so in this little dissertation here, we have a picture of human nature. That Joshua is saying, look guys, some of you still think it's evil to serve the Lord after all that you've experienced. And he whittles it all the way down to a choice. And that's what I want to do this morning. So I want to speak on the subject of choose you this day. So let's kind of paint the picture of what's happening here in this passage. Imagine the great host of the people of Israel standing in a place called Shechem. And they're standing before Joshua. Joshua is giving a speech, and it's going on and on and on. And really, the people of Israel are, are kind of anxious. They're tapping their foot, they're wringing their fingers, like, when is he going to shut up, get us out of here? Now, why? Why are they anxious? Well, because they're about to receive the thing that they've been looking for for 40 years. After this speech ends, Joshua is going to dismiss them into the promised land. They've laid out the boundary lines, and now they're going to be able to go set up camp in their perspective areas. This is a big deal. They probably cannot wait for him to shut up. They want to get out of there and go take their possession. I mean, it's been 40 years. 40 years. A journey that should have taken, I believe, 11 days. 11 days took 40 years. It turned into a generation's worth of wasted time. But finally, they're on the precipice of receiving what God had promised them. Now, they're at Shechem, which is significant. Jacob, if you remember, when he came back home, when he told God, if you'll bring me back to my father's home in peace, then you'll be my God. The place where he set up camp was Shechem, which means peace. It's where God's covenant with Abraham was established. Genesis 12, 6 and 7. It's where Joshua renewed the covenant after they were defeated by Ai. Remember that? They didn't consult the Lord. They went out against Ai and said, it's just a little one. They get whipped. Where does Joshua, this is a, this is a critical point in Israel's history and their journey to 
Canaan, through Canaan. So what does Joshua do? He renews the covenant with God at Shechem. After this speech in Joshua 24, they would bury the bones of Joseph in Shechem. So this is a very holy place. And here Israel, again, is gathered in this place to renew their covenant with God, this time just before taking up residence in the Promised Land. Now here, God is speaking through Joshua. It says that plainly. Joshua says, Thus saith the Lord. So this isn't just Joshua making an argument or Joshua making a speech. This is God speaking directly to His people through Joshua. Now what does He say? And this is what I found fascinating. God reminds Israel, as He always does, kind of of their history, their tradition, their culture, how it started. It's an incredible story, and He likes to retell it to remind them of who they are. You know, it's something that God does with us, right? Whenever we're off track, He reminds us who we are, where we came from. It's why, you know, God always seems to take Israel back to the Red Sea. Remember when I brought you out of Egypt? Remember when you crossed the Red Sea? Remember this? Remember that? As New Testament Christians, He always brings us back to the cross. And that's why some people struggle with assurance is because they're going back to all these other things instead of going back to the cross. Look at, again, look at how God dealt with human nature in the Old Testament. He took them back to their salvation. That's Egypt. It's a type of salvation. He took them back to that event, not just their personal experience of it, but the thing itself. And that's how God deals with us too. So when God reminds you of something in your past like that, you need to take notice. But what I thought was interesting here is that God emphasizes the fact that the very founder of the nation of Israel, Abraham, was an idolater. He was an idol worshiper when God called him. And so was his father. And so was his entire family. And so was the entire city and country and world that he lived in. And it's interesting that God would point that out. God's like, look, I started this nation from a guy who worshipped false gods. He was actively worshipping idols. I appeared to him and said, listen, buddy, let's go. We're leaving town. Come on. I'm the one true God. And I created you out of that. That's an interesting detail or emphasis that he's throwing in there. Now, when we read the Old Testament narrative, we see that, that the Bible descended quickly into chaos after the flood. So the flood ends, and Noah and his family, they begin to fill the earth back up. And then, of course, they don't do what God said to do, which was to kind of decentralize themselves and to spread out. And instead, they all centralized themselves together, which God knew what would happen. It would turn into a tyranny, and that's exactly what happened. And there was a, a tower that was built. And of course, you know what happened. The Tower of Babel changed everything. The scattering at Babel changed the world completely, and we're living in that world. So we, we don't talk about that enough, that... We're living in a fallen world. That's true, but the world was fallen before Babel too. It was already fallen. But we're fallen and scattered. It's completely different. We have our own Babels that we're building today too, by the way. And what God does is that God kind of decentralizes, the world centralizes, God decentralizes, the world centralizes. That's kind of the pattern that you see in the Old Testament. Things get too big, too strong, too tall. God knocks them down, flattens them out, scatters everybody. You see that in Acts as well at Pentecost. Everybody's gathered in one room. They come out, speak to all the Jews who are gathered there, and then Saul steps in, persecution, boom, scatters them. Centralization, decentralization. You see that all throughout the Old Testament, which is very interesting. So God decentralizes the world to some extent. He does it cyclically as well. But the world was scattered. They're confused, obviously. Their languages are confused. But this impacted their understanding of religion. 
And that's what we need to understand. That up until now, there was an oral tradition that had descended from Adam all the way to the Tower of Babel. And then what happens to that oral tradition when everyone is scattered, and not just scattered, that's, that's okay to spread out like God said, but scattered and confused. They're scattered, confused, they can't communicate. So what happens? Well, you get all of these different variations of the story. And we actually see that in the historical record. There's many different cultures who have a similar parallel story with Genesis, but they have their own takes and twists. And we would actually expect to find that if the story of the Tower of Babel is, is true. But what happens is then that you have people all over the world who are kind of scattered and confused, and the oral tradition kind of breaks up into to pieces. Right? It's called the times of ignorance. And ignorant about what? What was the world ignorant of? The world was ignorant of the true nature of God. That's what the world was ignorant of. Now, here's what happens. They grope about in the dark, to some extent, feeling for the nature of God. They're guessing. That's the way Chesterton talked about paganism. He said, paganism is a guess. It's just guessing what God is like. Maybe he's like this tree. Maybe he's like the ocean. Maybe he's like the sky. You know, it's just a guess. And so you have all these different traditions and cultures and false gods that arise out of this guessing which is a very interesting way to think about it. Now, what did God do? And by the way, the oral tradition that had descended from Adam is now hanging on by a thread. What do you read when you read the Old Testament? You don't read about these giant cultures who all believe in the God of Adam. You read about these big cultures that all believe the wrong thing. So the oral tradition that descended from Adam was not doing well, obviously, because of what happened at battle, because of man's disobedience. So how did God respond? God winks. He winks. Why? Because they're ignorant. They're groping about in the darkness, right? They're guessing. They don't know. Then what does God do? That changes with Abraham. God takes one of those idolaters who's guessing at the nature of God, pulls them out and says, that's not who I am. I'll tell you who I am. This is who I am. He revealed himself as himself to Abraham. And when he did, that obliterated Abraham's idolatry. And it changed the course of history. And then from Abraham, what God would do is, listen to this, God created a people that would safeguard and treasure the truth about God's nature until the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3 would come to bruise the serpent's head and begin the process of bringing back Eden. That is what is happening in this interaction with Abraham. He takes someone who is a worshiper of false gods and says, nope, wrong guess. That's not who I am. This is who I am. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, reveal myself to your nation, and we're going to protect that truth. And you're going to be smugglers of truth to some extent in this old world full of false gods. That's your job. You're smugglers of truth. And you're going to take it with you everywhere that you go. Now, what happens? If we fast forward, and this kind of blew my mind, because if you just read the narrative and take it on its face, you don't really get this. But if we fast forward to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, when he goes down into Egypt with his family, how, how big is the entire nation? It's not a nation, it's a family. Seventy people. Seventy people, a generation later. They're only seventy strong. And they go down into Egypt. Think about that. But that small little caravan is smuggling the truth of God's nature into the most powerful pagan culture in the world. 
God knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. So they go down into Egypt. They grow like crazy. They go to the point that Egypt sees them as a problem. And then what does the Egyptian Pharaoh do? He enslaves them. They keep growing. Think about what's happening. So God allows them to grow into a mighty people in Egypt. And then something's got to give. Something's got to give. We got to do something. Either Egypt's got to go. Israel's got to go. What are we going to do? So here's what God does. God then begins the process of Exodus, of the leaving. Now you have, to some extent, this is one way that you can read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is that the Exodus, the leaving out of Egypt and the journey into, into Canaan, is the battle of the gods to some extent. That's what it is. It's the true God against all the false gods of the world. That's what it is. That's what starts in Egypt is the battle between the true God and all other false gods. So what does God do? He doesn't just teleport Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. He uses them as a vessel of judgment to destroy every other God in the pagan world. Why? To correct their ignorance. To show them, no, that's not who I am. I am who I revealed myself to be to Abraham. Remember how to Moses, he says, I'm going to reveal myself to you in a way that I didn't to Abraham. What is it? This is a progression of revelation about God's nature to this peculiar people who are the vessels of truth in the old world. That's what's happening. But then what happens? Well, you have all these other people who believe in these other gods, and God has to validate the true belief and judge the false belief. And that's what he does through Israel. And he starts in Egypt with the plagues. So the plagues come. Here's the amazing thing about the plagues. The plagues just weren't a method of deliverance for Israel. They were a method of judgment against Egypt and specifically against their gods. Each plague corresponds with an Egyptian god or goddess. Think about this. The first plague, Nile is turned to blood. And there's an Egyptian god named, I'm probably going to get all these names wrong, Hapi. He's the god of annual flooding, and there's Osiris, which had the Nile River as his bloodstream. Then you have the plague of the frogs. Hapi as well was the goddess of fertility, and Hegd, who had the head of a frog. And the plague of lice. It was lysed from the dust of the earth, and you had Seb, the earth god. Then you had the plague of flies, where you have Bachtai, the fly god. You have dead livestock. You have Apis, the bull god. You have boils on the body. You have Sekhmet, goddess of epidemics. Where's she been the last few years? And then you have hail and fire. You have Nut, literally N-U-T, Nut, the sky goddess. Seth, god of storms. And Shu, god of the atmosphere. Then you have the plague of the locusts. You have Cyrus, the god of crops. And Serapia, protector of crops. Well, she failed. She failed on the job. Then you have the plague of darkness, which went after... The biggest god, Ra, the sun god, who was the most worshipped in Egypt. Then you have the death of the firstborn. That corresponds with Heget, goddess of birth, and Min, the goddess of reproduction. So what is God doing? God is destroying their gods. It's the battle of the gods, and the true God wins. He decimated and destroyed Egyptian idolatry in ten fell swoops. And that's the way that you should read the story of the Exodus from there to the promised land. Remember, he says that. He says, look, I'm not saving you out of Egypt because you're so good and righteous. 
I'm saving you out of Egypt because they're so wicked and I'm going to use you to judge them. And if you do what they're doing, I'll judge you too. God is displaying himself as sovereign and he's validating the faith of his chosen vessel, Israel. He's saying, yep, what they believe is true. All right, but he didn't stop there. God used Israel as an instrument of judgment against nation after nation, one after the other. Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites all fell. That means Baal, Dagon, Ashtaroth, Molech, all decimated by the true God. So God had toppled nations, dethroned kings, slain false gods, and all, think of this, for a small nomadic group of peculiar truth-carrying people. It's crazy. There's no story like it. And one of the reasons he did it was to leave the vessels of truth without excuse. All of those nations had an excuse. It's why God had winked for so long and why he waited for their sin to be full. Remember that? He said the sin of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He waited for it to be filled full before he poured out judgment on them. Why? They were ignorant. They still had some excuses left and God had to take those away. And when they were gone, he judged them. But what excuse did Israel have? None. What excuse did the vessels of truth have? None. All right, what about us? What about us? Israel's no longer the vessel of truth. We are. The church is. The members of the church are the vessels of truth. And we have God's word. We have the final revelation. We are no longer living in the times of ignorance. We're living in a time of abundant knowledge. So we are, as they were, without excuse. And yet, we keep trying to harvest some, trying to create them ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now, what I mean is that just like Joshua, essentially the argument that he's making to Israel is, there are still some of you here today gathered at Shechem. If we snap back to that picture of Israel gathered for before Joshua, the people who had experienced all these things, and many had passed away, but still the young ones had experienced a lot as well. They had all seen miracles. I think 25% of the miracles in the entire Bible those generations saw. It's incredible. And then Joshua says, all right, let me ask a question. Anybody here, it still seems evil to you to serve the Lord? The truth is, he knew that there were. There were still people somehow in that generation who said, and the word evil there means good for nothing. You know what? I don't want to serve God. I mean, I just don't see the point. I just, it's not my, not my thing. I don't think I can do it. I'm just not the kind of person who can serve the Lord. You know, it's just as where it is. That's just who I am. That's just my, you know, my habit. It's who I am by nature. It's like, yeah, it's who you are by nature. It's what God came to change was our nature. And that's what Christians are called to be as people who continually and progressively change and improve. That's, that's what we are. It's called, that's sanctification. So here's the thing. Joshua is essentially saying, God has left you without excuse, and yet to some of us it still seems evil to serve the Lord. So here's my question to those that are still holding out. He says, what's the alternative? Okay, what other choice are you going to make? What other God are you going to serve? Because he says, okay, if it still seems evil for you, to serve the God who delivered you and who destroyed all these other gods, who's left? Baal? Please. Asherah? Really? Set? Ra? 
You're going to go back to the gods of Egypt that he destroyed? What about Dagon? Oh yeah, Dagon, who at least that god of stone had enough sense, it's a joke, to fall down before the Ark of the Covenant like three times. So, what, Molech? You're going to go back to Molech? Joshua's saying, then what's the alternative? Or God's saying through Joshua, what's the alternative then? Then choose you this day who you will serve. Pick one. God destroyed them all. He destroyed every single one. Now think about this. In our exodus, our Red Sea moment, our deliverance, when God poured out His judgment, not on Egypt, but on His Son. When God poured out His judgment on His Son, a new exodus began. And we weren't delivered from Egypt, we were delivered from sin. We were delivered from a slavery of our own. We were delivered from the slavery of our own nature and our own sinfulness. And that demonstration of Christ on the cross, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. It leaves all of us without excuse. I'm without excuse. So here's what we do, though. We still have areas in all of our lives where for some reason it seems evil for us to commit that to the Lord. We're like, I just don't, I can't, I'm just not that kind of person. I can't do that. I've never been able to do that. My parents struggle with that or whatever the excuse is. Okay, then we could ask ourselves the same question that Joshua asked Israel. What's the alternative? Okay, not going to serve the Lord in this area. Then choose you this day whom ye will serve. What, the God of money? I mean, how many times does God have to destroy the idol of money in this country for us to listen? There's a reason why inflation is close to 9%. God's destroying an idol. He's killing an idol. That's what He's doing. When God moves in, the first thing He does is He starts throwing down idols. And the idols of our culture are toppling as we speak, and we're lamenting it. I don't understand. You know, I did that, the Joe Biden sticker. No, the truth is we did that. Joe Biden did not do that. Joe Biden is an instrument. He's an instrument. That's what he is. He's an instrument of judgment on this country. And uh, you pick anybody that you want. Trump, you know, any of the Trumps, any one of the 4,000 of them, like however many that... Pick, pick the one you want. Put them all in. It's not going to fix the problem because we did that. We did that. And how many times does God have to topple the idols in our life before we stop running back to them? Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the truth. We are without excuse. We don't have an excuse to whatever it is, whatever we're holding back to, whatever we're holding on to, saying, I don't know, I just don't think I can. I don't really see the benefit. I don't really think I can do that. We're, we're holding back on that. Okay, so we have, to make, we have to make a choice. Joshua says, look, it's not that you need another reason. You don't need another miracle. You don't need another revelation. You don't need God to move in your heart one more time. God, if you speak to me one more time, I'll do it. God, if you move in this area, I'll do it. No, we don't need any of that. We don't need an additional syllable of truth given to us. What we need to do is what Israel needed to do, and that's just make the choice. It's a choice. At the end of the day, serving God is a choice. That's what it is. It's nothing more than that. It is a free and willing choice. And I decide to some extent how difficult it is to get to the point where I finally make the choice. I could change that area of my life if I chose to do so. It's just a choice away. A changed life is a choice away. A changed marriage is a choice away. Why is marriage difficult? Because two people have to make the choice. That's why it's hard. Because one person can't choose for the other person. 
Both people have to make a choice. If two people choose to have a good marriage, there's nothing that can stop them. And yet we say, well, you know, my parents, or well, you know this, or well, my upbringing. No, 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 it's a choice. It's a choice. Your knowledge cannot choose for you. It informs your choice. It does not determine your choice. Your genetics inform your choice. They do not determine your choice. Your experiences inform your choice. They do not determine your choice. The miracles that you've seen, how God has moved and worked in your life, do not determine your choice. They inform and influence your choice. But all we're doing is delaying the amount of time it takes for us to actually make the choice. We can make the choice without any of that. You don't need God to move in your life again for you to change it. You don't. You can make the choice when? Choose you this day. Today. You could listen to me. This is 100% true. Whatever that thing is in your life that's bugging you that hasn't changed, it could be you, it could be your relationship, it could be anything. If it's within your control, and most of the time it is, you could start changing it today if you just made the choice. You don't need anything else. Nothing. You don't need another syllable of truth or revelation. You just have to make the choice. Because at the end of the day, service to God is a free and willing choice. It always has been. Every sacrifice to some extent in the Old Testament was a free will offering. No priest drugged someone out of their home and said, bring that bullock up here. You had to freely give it. Here's the thing. You can make it hard, make it difficult. It can be a long process or a short process. But at the end of the day, it is a choice. I'll close with this. There's an idea in the Old Testament that when God appears in your life, it's a form of judgment. It's called the day of visitation. When God visits you, it's a judgment. Now, sometimes it's for good, sometimes it's for bad. When God judged Babel, what did he do? The Bible says he came down to see. He came down, he walked in it. I believe that a physical manifestation of God himself walked in the Tower of Babel. Just as he appeared before Abraham and walked and stood face to face with Abraham to see Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the thing. When Isaiah saw God, he fell on his face and he said, I am unclean. What does that mean? God appearing to you and moving in your life is a judgment of you. No man can see my face and live. If God fully revealed himself to us, we would all fall short and die. We would experience the wages of sin in that moment. Why? Because God's presence is judgment. God's presence is judgment. Here's what that means. God has already moved enough in my life to judge me, to render me sinful, unclean, and me asking him, God, move again, move again, move again, come in again, visit me again, visit me again, is to some extent ignoring all of the previous judgments that God has already given. It is tempting God. It is testing God. The truth is, I've already been judged. I've fallen short. God knows. God's moved in my life enough times. I don't need another miracle. don't need a revelation. I just need to hurry up and make a choice. So what I would ask you today is what is it in your life that you could change, that you can change, that God has spoken to you about, about changing, that you've said, well, my dad struggled with this, or well, you know, I'm just not a morning person. I'm just not, I'm just not a reader. It's like nobody's a born reader. Did you realize that? No kid pops out and goes, you got a paper laying around? The Wall Street Journal, preferably. There's no born readers. Like whatever it is you need to change about yourself, if it's your health, but mainly your spiritual life, you can change it. It's just a choice away. It's one choice away. 
Everything in your life has informed that choice, but it can't make it for you. You have to make that choice, and you can choose you this day whom ye will serve. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, share, and most importantly, follow the podcast. When you hit the follow button, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. See you in the next episode. God bless.